Uh, this evening, uh, for those of you who follow football, uh, the Philadelphia Eagles and the Kansas City Chiefs will face off in uh, Super Bowl 57. Um, as a Dallas Cowboys fan, it grieves me a little bit to say this, but uh, this is the second time in the past several years the Eagles have been in a Super Bowl. In the previous Super Bowl they were in, they won uh, the first ever Super Bowl for their franchise. The following season, in the opening game of the season, the Eagles were playing in Philadelphia, celebrating their team's first ever Super Bowl win. And at the half, they went into the locker room trailing 6-3, to three, and in a way that only Philadelphia Eagles fans can, they booed their team to the locker room, fresh off of their first ever Super Bowl win. What have you done for me lately? I think this is right and fair in sports. We give of our time and our energy and our efforts to watch the team. We should expect them to be successful week in and week out. This idea of what have you done for me lately. I think if each of us are honest in this place this morning, myself included, this is the mentality that we oftentimes have when we come to consider the church, and when we come here to worship together, the idea of what can I get out of this morning? What is in it for me? I think if we're honest, each of us is guilty of this from time to time. And at the heart, I think we would all agree of this type of self-centeredness is envy and pride. Not true, genuine worship, but but a desire to please self. Genuine worshipers desire to honor God supremely and renounce jealousy and pride. I want us to consider that this morning as we walk through Genesis chapter 4. We pick up our story here in chapter 4, verse 1, and we uh, begin by reading there, if you would, with me in verse 1. It says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. In these first few verses of uh, chapter 4, we see two contrasting sacrifices. Uh, Right away in verse 1, Eve uh, presents a statement of hope and faith. I have gotten a man from the help of the Lord. And there's the same type of faith and hope that we saw last week in chapter 3, verse 20, when Adam named his wife Eve the mother of the living. The faith that God would bring about life in the midst of a fallen world. But right away in chapter 2, we are introduced to these two brothers Uh, And there's something somewhat ominous about what is mentioned about the two boys. First, we are told about their occupation. Uh, Abel 
Interestingly, his occupation as a keeper of the sheep resembles his father Adam's occupation before the fall when he was in the garden and God charged him to look over the livestock of the field and and to name them, whereas Cain is a worker of the ground. And if you've been paying attention as we've walked through the first three chapters of Genesis, you know that there's some significance to the ground. Adam was brought up out of the ground. Last week, he was told by God that he would return to the ground. Also, part of the curse was that Adam would work the ground all of his days by the sweat of his brow. And these two brothers then bring an offering, a sacrifice to the Lord. And we're not really given much detail as to why what motivated them to do so, what the circumstances are surrounding this. But regardless, the writer tells us that these two brothers brought a sacrifice to the Lord. Each of the sacrifices corresponding a little bit to their occupation. Abel brings something from the flock. Cain brings something from the field. But the writer highlights something here specifically about Abel's sacrifice, his offering, that he doesn't really tell us about Cain's offering. It tells us that Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. He brought the fattest and the best of the flock, which we know later in in Mosaic tradition when the tabernacle is erected and and sacrifices are, are regulated there that the Lord wants the people to bring their best and Abel does that. Whereas for Cain, the writer doesn't really tell us much about his offering and what he brings. And so it appears right away that we have a worshiper who is giving his best and then one who is simply giving out of obligation. And this really is then communicated in the Lord's response to their offerings, where the Lord had regard for the offering of Abel, but the offering of Cain he had no regard for. It's not so much what they gave as it is their attitude in their worship. And this reality is reiterated in Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, where in verse 4 the writer says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel's sacrifice was one of faith rather than obligation. This idea of bringing an acceptable offering of worship to the Lord is something that we see throughout Scripture. In fact, just a few weeks ago when we were walking through the penitential Psalms in Psalm 51, we read this, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so we have to stop this morning and pause for a moment and consider what is our attitude of worship as we gather in this place today. Psalm 100 verses 1 and 2 says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Have you gathered here this morning with a joyful song in your heart and and, and joyful singing and glad singing on your lips? Or did you come this morning to worship begrudgingly? Kids, did mom and dad force you to come to church today? Maybe your husband or your wife has been nagging you to be in church. What is your attitude of worship this morning? 
I think, too, about our, our worship and our giving, of our tithe as we give as a church to the advancement of the gospel here in San Antonio and to the ends of the earth. What is the attitude in our worship and our tithe? 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Is tithing seen as a burden and a drag, or is it something that you do cheerfully and joyfully as to the Lord? Do you give the best of what you have to the Lord and your tithe? Or is the first thing that goes in your budget when things get tough is to cut the tithe? What is the attitude of our worship? We pick up the story there in verse 5 where it says, So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. We see here in these few verses a self-righteous heart. Cain's response of being angry with the Lord for not accepting his sacrifice speaks to his self-righteous heart. Not a response of humility, but a response of arrogance and pride. And so the Lord presents two questions to him of interrogation, much like we saw last week when God interacted with his parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden after the fall. And then in verse 7, he gives him a, a type of proverb, paternal type of advice, where we see in the Proverbs, the writer says, listen, son, to the voice of your father. God gives this type of proverbial advice to uh, to Cain, if you will do well, you will not. Uh, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And then he says, "There, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it." If that sounds familiar to you, that's good because that's pretty much word for word what we read last week in chapter three at the end of verse sixteen, where Eve is told of what her relationship with her husband will be like post-fall. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. There's a reminder here of the outcome of the first conflict. And as an observer, when we read this story, we think to ourselves, man, Cain, did you not learn from mom and dad the first time around? Are we going to go at this again? Cain has no desire to find victory over sin. The Lord pleads with him as a father would to a son, and yet he, he, is, he is trapped in his sinfulness, and he has already set his heart on doing what is wicked. And so we see there in verse 8 that he decides to kill his brother. The writer makes it clear there in verse 8 that this is not an unintentional killing, that this was premeditated. It says there that he spoke to Abel, his brother, that he lured him away to a field. And once he was there, out of sight from those who could see, it says he rose up against his brother and killed him. There's a perfect parallel to this story, to the fall in chapter 3, where in verses 4 through 5, we see Satan's speech to the woman where he deceives her and leads her into not believing and trusting in the Lord. Whereas here in chapter 4 verses 6 and 7, we see God's speech pleading with Cain to listen to the voice of his father, his father God. 
chapter 3, verse 6, it says, when she saw, here in verse 8, it says, when they were. Chapter 3, verse 6, it says, she ate, here in verse 8, it says, he killed. The pattern of sin is always the same. It begins with a denial of God's good word and God's good character and God's goodness to us as our father. And then it leads to a lingering over temptation and finally the act of sin itself. And it's rooted in this idea that, that, the, that disobedience will produce something better than obedience to God. This was the heart of the deception of the serpent. He led the woman to believe that if she disobeyed, something better was in store for her. At its core is this belief that sin will make me happy. And so when we are tempted, regardless of what the sin is, whether it's to lust or to steal or to covet, the power of temptation is rooted in this lie that sin will make us happy. You'll be happy if you just trust your own instincts and your own ideas instead of trusting in the promises of Christ. This is the, the mantra of the world in our day. What is best for you, what is true for you is what will make you happy. But if we are in Christ this morning, we have died to this lie. We live in faith believing that God's way is best. We cling to the truth of his word, living satisfied completely and utterly in Christ and Christ alone. In every area of our lives. And when we do that, when we live satisfied in Christ, sin begins to lose its enticement. We pick up the story there in verse 9. It says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Here in these verses, we see a blood that speaks. Just as before, when God came to his father, Adam, in the garden and said, Where are you? God asked a rhetorical question to Cain, What have you done? seeking a confession and indication of guilt from Cain. And at least last week, Adam and Eve, when we read there, although they played a game of blame, they confessed their sin. They both said, I ate. But here, Cain denies any wrongdoing or responsibility. We still live in a time where men deny their responsibility for what they have done wrong, whether it was intentional or unintentional. We, we don't want to admit our wrongdoing. We don't want to take responsibility for our actions. And so God asked him a question, what have you done? Again, this is very similar to the question that he asked his mother earlier in uh, chapter 3, 
verse 13 when it says, what is this that you have done? And last week we talked about how the writer is emphasizing here that this is strong language. The Lord is saying to Cain, what in the earth have you done? And yet God answers his own question. He knows the answer. The blood of the brother Abel is crying out from the, from the ground. Cain denies it. But the spilt blood of his brother gives another testimony. And so God gives his judgment on Cain. He tells him that he will no longer yield fruit from the ground and that he will be a vagabond, a wandering fugitive all of his days. And Cain does not like the punishment that he receives. He says to the Lord, I cannot bear this. It is too much for me to bear. This reminds me of when you share the gospel with people and oftentimes when you tell them of the eternal punishment that is set in hell for them because of their sins that they say, well, that seems a little harsh, don't you think? That God would give me an eternal punishment in hell for just a few wrong things that I've done in my life? Just speaks to the reality of our lack of understanding of a holy creator God and the offense that our sin is against him. And we see that in Cain's attitude. There's no sense of remorse. He's just thinking simply about himself. And yet, God shows him an act of grace. He places a mark on him, a, a, a mark of protection from the threat of being killed by those who are going to seek vengeance for the blood of Abel. Now, we don't know exactly what the mark is. And as commentators and theologians do, there's a lot of debate about what the mark is. My favorite is there was one commentator who says this is the first tattoo in human history. Not sure how true that is, but what we do know and what we do see here is that God is saying this, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is for the Lord. Lest anyone think they will get vengeance on Cain, the Lord says no. Puts this mark on him as an act of grace, speaking to his nature and his character as a holy God. And then again, we see movement eastward. It says there in verse 16 that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. There's this sense here that the writer wants us to see that man is becoming further and further away from the garden. Moving eastward, away from the promise and the, and the hope of the garden and moving into sin and destruction and death as we saw last week. And so we say to ourselves, how, how do we apply this strange dialogue between God and Cain to our lives today? Well, believe it or not, Scripture helps us apply the text this morning. Two points of application that Scripture lends itself to in regards to this part of the story. First point of application, we are reminded here today to love our brother Regardless of what they've done to us or how they've treated us, that we are to love each other in the love of Christ. 1 John 3, 11 through 13, John says this, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. In Christ, we do not live as Cain. We live as Christ who loved and gave himself up for us. So, so too do we with one another, loving one another. 
But secondly, and probably more importantly, the application of this part of the story is this. Come to Christ this morning because his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, the writer says that very thing. He says there that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cries out from the ground death and brokenness and lostness and helplessness. But the blood of Christ cries out a better word, a word of life eternal that is found only through him. And his work at the cross on our behalf where his blood was spilt for wretched sinners like you and I. I love what one commentator had to say of the blood of Abel and the blood of Christ. He said, Abel's blood, even the best and the dearest, never brings salvation in the presence of God. And so Abel is the better brother. He brings a better sacrifice, the, the best and, and, and the best of, of this one man, the dearest of this one man was not enough to bring salvation. The commentator goes on to say, instead, it increases the burden of the curse. But Christ's blood speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. Thus, the Bible speaks of two kinds of blood and their voices before God. One of these is a millionfold, and its message is accusation, while the other is the blood of the one, the seed, Christ himself, and it brings healing. That is the message of the gospel. That God himself came near to us in the form of a man and lived a sinless life and died on a cross and his blood was spilt as the perfect sacrifice. And he rose victorious over sin and death, conquering the grave once and for all. And if we believe in him this morning, if we put our faith in him this morning and repent and turn from our sins, we will find salvation eternal because his blood speaks a better word. Do you believe that this morning? Do you know of the power of the blood of the seed? We pick up our story and conclude then, beginning in verse 17. It says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sisters, uh, sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, 
people began to call upon the name of the Lord. In these closing verses, we see two distinct lines of descendants. Now, there is two ways we can interpret this part of the passage, primarily when we think about the descendants of Cain in verses 17 through 24. We could interpret it in a more optimistic, positive light to just see that this is culture being brought into the world, civilization is being born, or we can interpret it in a more pessimistic, negative light. I would like us to do the latter. I would like us to interpret it in a more negative sense, and here's why. So follow me here for just a moment. The writer has in mind here the seed of the woman who will come and crush the head of the serpent. And so he is highlighting this seed. And the seed, the line of Messiah, is not through Cain and his descendants. The line is through Adam and his descendant Seth that we are introduced here in verse 25. In fact, next week, chapter 5, we're going to look at the descendants of Seth. And so the writer wants us to note and highlight, and he will do this through the rest of Genesis, and we see this through the rest of the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, the genealogy of Christ, the promise of the seed, the line of Messiah. The writer is highlighting that. And in the midst of the seed of Seth, the line of Seth, there are some like Enoch, who we are told walked with God. There are some like Noah, In chapter 6, verse 8, who says he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There are those who call upon the name of the Lord and have a desire to carry on the name of the Lord to the generation to come a remnant, if you will, of some who love and trust and seek the Lord. And notice that they're doing it in the midst of this context. Chapter 6, in the beginning there. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That there are some in the line of Seth, the line of Messiah, who seek the Lord in the midst of a corrupt world. And so back to our text this morning, verses 17 through 24, I believe the writer is highlighting the corruptness of the world that it's beginning there. And there's a few reasons why I think we see this. First, we see uh, the first uh, act of polygamy, that, that Lamech has two wives, that he changes the institution of marriage that was set out in the garden between one man and one woman. We see the devaluing of life here in, the, in this poem of Lamech where he boasts what some commentators call his taunt song in, in killing this man. He's boasting in it and saying that, that, the, that the, um, the leniency that he wants should be greater than that of Cain. A devaluing of life in this culture. But also we see the building up of empty prosperity apart from God. Building a name for self What did Cain want to name the city? Named it after his son, building a name for himself. We see the the different uh, features and, and descriptions about these people. Those who play the lyre and the pipe and the forgers of all instruments. People making a name for themselves. And this is what we'll see later at the Tower of Babel. The whole problem there was that people wanted to what? Make a name for self. When people reject God's goodness that was displayed in the garden, the foundations of life are broken down. That's what we see happening here. We still see this in our world today. But notice, secondly, though, the positive of this. The descendants of Adam through Seth. A couple things that we can note here. First, in verse 25, 
is what Eve says of Seth. She says what? God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. She recognizes that it was God who brought life, this desire to preserve the knowledge of the Lord. And then finally, there we see those who call upon the name of the Lord. Potentially a better translation there, verse 26, is that people began to make proclamation about the nature of God. There is a desire in the midst of a fallen and broken world by some to preserve the knowledge of the Lord, to hold high the name of the Lord and bring him glory in this world. I often think of Joshua's generation, who there at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua says very famously, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people there affirm that and say, we, we agree, we we affirm what you're, what you're saying. That is our, our confession as well. As, as for us and our homes, we too will serve the Lord. You fast forward then to the next book, the book of Judges. And there in Judges, it tells us that Joshua and his generation, the entire generation, loved the Lord and they knew the Lord and they served the Lord all of their days. But just a few verses later there in Judges, it says that there was another generation. The next generation came, and they did not know the name of the Lord or the works that he had done. And all that they did was wickedness in the sight of the Lord. And I oftentimes think to myself, how do you go from a generation that's confession is, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, who love the Lord and serve the Lord all their days, to a generation who doesn't even know the name of the Lord and the works that he's done? And it's because the generation of Joshua got the first part right of the confession, as for me, I will serve the Lord, but they forgot to teach their house how to serve the Lord and to know the Lord. In our self-indulgent society that we live in, God's people must be the one who preserve the knowledge and the truth of the Lord. And so in our church, and as a church, as we still live in a world much like the world that, that we see with Cain and his descendants who change the institution of marriage and devalue life and build up empty prosperity, we must stand against those things. We must stand on the truth of God's word and what he has ordained for marriage to be. From the beginning, in the garden, no distortion of marriage can we defer, uh, uh, affirm as the church, whatever that might be. That we as the church would speak out for the vulnerable in our world. That we would be ones who value life. That we cry out for the unborn in our country. Thousands of babies that are killed each and every year in this country. Or, or those children that are caught up in the foster system. Who will be their advocate if not the church? Or those who come to the end of their life and are near their deathbed, that we as the church would respect them and revere them, that we would stand on the word of God. And that we would not build up empty prosperity in our lives and in our homes, but our homes would be built on the solid rock of Christ. But also, I, I go back to the example of Joshua, that we would, in our homes, be ones who have a desire to preserve the knowledge of the Lord. And so I hope, moms and dads, grandparents, that you've heard me say at least once in my time here as your pastor that it is the responsibility primarily of the parents to disciple their children. 
This is how scripture has ordained it. Now, I understand that 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 seems overwhelming and daunting. And for some of you, you might say discipleship. I don't even know what that word means. Let me encourage you with this. That it's very simple to instill discipleship in your home. And it looks as simple as this. Whether your kids are grown and out of the house or you're a newly married couple and you don't have kids yet, here's my charge for each and every family here today. As best as you can every day, read the word with your family. Pray with your family. And sing praises to the Lord. And that's it. It might take 10 minutes. It might take 15 minutes. In our home, we call it family worship. And it's only because that's what the Puritans called it. And you know how much I love the Puritans. Call it whatever you want. Take time each and every day to just stop and read and pray and sing the word together as a family. In doing that, you are doing well in discipling your home. But also in our relationships, our relationships as the body of Christ, that we would do life together as brothers and sisters in Christ outside of these walls. We see in the book of Acts that the people were meeting day by day to encourage one another and build each other up to be more like Jesus, that we would be about that as a church, that the fellowship wouldn't just end inside these walls, but we would gather each and every week together, whether it's over coffee or on a job site or whether it's in a home, to pray together and encourage one another and hold each other accountable and study the word of God together, that we would have a, a, a desire to disciple one another. The journey of discipleship is not one that we ever outgrow. And so my encouragement to each of us, including myself, is who are you helping to look more like Jesus this week? And who is helping to do the same in your life? I've been warning you that as we start to walk through Genesis, we're going to see a family that's very dysfunctional. And that is on full display for us here right at the beginning where we see a brother killing his own flesh and blood. Talk about dysfunction. And yet there's a glimmer of hope here in the text this morning of those who call upon the name of the Lord, who have a desire in the midst of the dysfunction to hold high and lift high the name of the Lord, to instill in a coming generation and preserve the knowledge and the truth of the Lord, who have a desire to walk with God, The truth for each of us this morning, as individuals, as families, and even as a church, is we are a dysfunctional people. Our hope this morning is not in ourselves, though. And so in the midst of the dysfunction, may we be a church and and families and individuals who do the same, that we would call upon the name of the Lord, that we would walk with the Lord, that we would seek the Lord in all that we do, that we would desire to please God in our worship, not just here in this place, but in all that we do, all of life is worship, and that we would turn from envy and pride. Let us pray.